Well, good morning, everyone. It's good for me to be with you. It's, uh, I was realizing today is kind of a liberation day for me personally. In my second year of retirement, my wife and I have had the intention of worshiping with particularly other PCA churches in the area. But then I accepted the assignment at Westminster some time ago last summer to uh, teach a class uh, in our Sunday school, adult Sunday school, which uh, kept me there for six months. So this is liberation that we can actually come and worship with others. We came through some really nasty weather in Leola, heading here from our home in Lidditz. And I was thinking about quarter of eight this morning as we were driving through real heavy sleeting rain. Uh, wow, I thought there won't be two people at this 8.15 service. And there were almost 20. So how often can a preacher say there were 10 times more people than I anticipated? That's pretty good. I'm turning today to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, or 11, I'm sorry, chapter 11, uh, with a very familiar text, one that many of you will recognize right away. You know that Corinthians was a church full of problems, and Paul addressed a number of problems one after another. And one of them was the problem attached, at least by some people's problem, uh, the way they were celebrating the Lord's Supper, or really not celebrating it the right way. And so I read familiar words. Tim had told me that this would be a communion Sunday. And uh, so I thought, well, let's... I asked him if you had looked at this text lately, and he said no. So uh, we're looking at Paul's corrective to problems in communion and setting forth some basic principles that we can be well reminded of. Follow with me, if you wish, in God's Word, 1 Corinthians 11, starting at 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have even died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. When we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. I'm sure you know that at crucial points in life, we all sooner or later submit to various examinations that test our qualifications for certain things. High school students, you may, those who can remember that far back, uh, probably took the dreaded SAT test. You're advised to take it more than once because you improve as you go, and it's a needed qualification, as you may know, for college entrance. 
And then there are people who must pass in-depth career exams before practicing medicine or being admitted to the bar for practicing law or being ordained to the ministry. And uh, our new youth pastor at Westminster has just passed through his rigorous, we call them the trials of ordination. And if you go through it, you know why they're trials. But I was wondering, what if some of these vital examinations that we take in life were all self-administered? Wouldn't that be nice? I have several grandsons progressing through teenage years, and uh, boy, I, I know they would love to be able to just say, hey, Dad, I know how to drive. I don't need to go have a, an exam to get a license. I'm ready, Dad. Let me have the car. And they would wish that that would happen, I suppose. What if you uh, were, had a complicated career like being a pharmacist where you had to know a lot of drugs and how they interacted and what was right and what was wrong and that, that score, and you said, okay, I, I think I know what you need to know. That's it. I won't harm anybody. I'll just declare myself a pharmacist. I don't think you'd patronize that shop. At least I wouldn't. But surprisingly, there's an area in the Christian life where self-examination plays a major role. According to this classic New Testament text that gives us clear guidance on how the Lord's Supper, of all things, must be observed, self-examination is essential in coming properly to the Lord's table. 1 Corinthians 11, you know, was written because there were problem Christians and church problems in Corinth. And people were selfishly coming to communion and practicing it and actually to the harm and detriment of others in the body of Christ. And they were told by Paul, examine yourselves, lest you be unworthy of how you participate. I'd like to unpack this a little bit in two primary points today. First of all, it's taken for granted, I believe, in this text that there must be an initial self-examination to see if you belong to Christ in the first place. Are you a true Christian? Now, the Lord's Supper is the sacrament for Christian believers and no others. It is not intended for those who casually might pass by and drop in at a church and say, I wonder what they're doing here. Oh, what's this curious thing? They have the little cups and uh, bread and wonder what that's all about. I'll just take it and see what, what's going on. We pastors are told and instructed in part of our ordination uh, learning to do what is called fencing the table. I don't know if you've ever heard that term. I expect Pastor Whitmer has used it. The idea being that we make it clear each time the communion is celebrated that it is for those who already know Jesus Christ and bow before him and call him Lord. It is not for others. A crude illustration might be the the kind of thing, some of you probably have this at your home, uh, invisible fence for your dog where you put a wire in the ground around the property and the dog wears a collar with a, some kind of a receiver and gets a little bit of an unpleasant shock if he tries to transgress the territory that's been marked out. We do that with the table. We say this is the Lord's table. Now, it sort of loses the effectiveness with the little plastic cups we're going to have today, but uh, if you think of it the way we usually celebrate communion anyway, we say this is for God's people who know Christ and honor him as Lord. 
Now, we believe that communion was celebrated in the early church in many places for a long time in conjunction with a meal, a full meal. Some would call it a love feast, a fellowship feast. Coming together, folks would probably bring, it was more like a potluck almost, where people would bring their own food, and they would dine together, and then at the end of the supper would come the Lord's Supper, the sacrament. That's probably what was happening, and, and it was that eating all the other food that caused some of the problems. It almost makes me think of what you see sometimes at Shady Maple, where many of you go. And, uh, you know, I enjoy Shady Maple, especially it's nice when you get the free meal on your birthday. But I have to say, and I hope somebody doesn't carry this back to the owners and say uh, a preacher was maligning your business, but uh, there's something just a little gross about Shady Maple when I see folks much larger than myself on their third or fourth platter of goods coming from those, those endless uh, kitchen things that they have to offer. Well, it seems like what was happening here was there were those who were wealthy. They were well provided for. They brought plenty of food, plenty of wine. They enjoyed it and, uh, with their friends, and maybe they sat in their little corner and other folks sat in their little corner. And those who didn't have much or couldn't afford much were ignored. The ones who had much didn't say, hey, George, I see you're a little short this week. Come on over here. We've got extra steak. Dine with us. That wasn't happening. And 1 Corinthians 11.29 becomes, I think, the statement of the crux issue here under this first point where Paul gives a pretty stinging indictment that they were coming to the Lord's table, verse 29, without discerning the body. I always have been interested in that phrase because someone might say, what in the world does that mean, discerning the body? Well, we think without any doubt, Paul is talking about the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God who was incarnate. We've just come through Advent season and Christmas when we celebrate and we lift high the truth that God has come in human flesh. And it's the body of Jesus Christ that went all the way to the cross to become our atonement for sin and rose from a grave that has to be discerned or understood at the center of the Lord's table. If you didn't discern that, if you didn't see that Christ crucified and Christ risen is at the center of this thing, it's a little bit like going to a wedding and say, oh, hey, honey, on your drive home, was there a bride and groom there? I I didn't meet them. You go to the wedding and don't meet the bride and groom, you've really missed the point, haven't you? But that's what was happening. People were coming to the supper that celebrated the incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, and they were leaving him out. They weren't discerning that he was the center of the whole thing. This same apostle Paul also wrote in the second book of the Corinthians, Second Corinthians 13.5, and there he spelled out the same thing, I think, in maybe even a little clearer terms when he said, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize that Jesus Christ is in you? Are you in the faith? Sounds like a code phrase, and I guess it was for Paul. Are you someone who looks to Christ, bows before him, and makes him the central thing being celebrated in this sacrament of wine and bread. And Paul said, if not, and if you're just going through this selfish, gluttonous, 
picnic that really doesn't have the Lord at the center, you might be so trampling on sacred things that you're sick and dying because of it. I'm sure people there never thought of that. Now, every time we come to the Lord's Supper, we do warn people and say you need to profess faith in Christ. Romans 10, 9, and 10 is the classic text. It says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And normally we look for someone to step forward, come to into membership of a church, whether as a youth or an adult, and confess or give testimony and say, yes, Jesus is my Lord. For 20 centuries, the elders and pastors have been the leaders of Christian churches who hear the testimonies of young people, usually a young people's class when they join the church together, or adults who come along and had never professed Christ before, meet with the elders, and we listen to hear, well, who is Christ to you? Well, how did you learn of him? Well, what are you doing to be a disciple in his name and so on? And we sort of tease the truth out of some people because some are not as eloquent about talking about their, their personal testimony. But we, what the elders are listening for all the time is simply, can this person say, Jesus Christ is my Lord? And if they can say that, they're welcome to be part of the body of the church. I wanted to tell you a little story. It's kind of a side story, but it's, it's just such a wonderful one that I'm still just praising God for this uh, little happening. It took place at Westminster just a couple months ago, not even two months, I think about six weeks ago. A lady in our church is named Carol, my wife's name. She, she and her husband are about our ages, and uh, I'm in my early 70s. I won't tell you my wife's age. Um, she is too. <laughs> Carol and her husband, Ed, had been part of Westminster for a long time, but but actually it was only a 50% part of Westminster because Carol was very active in the church, came to all the women's studies, and very warm uh, Christian woman, really loved the Lord. But Ed wasn't there that much. Once in a while he'd come around for a concert or sometime he liked to learn things. I think he was an engineer. And uh, he, he would come if there was a speaker that was talking about something unusual. But as far as we knew, Ed was avoiding worship and didn't show in worship for years and uh, didn't claim to be a Christian believer. Well, in the providence of God, just a couple months ago, Ed had a major stroke. And uh, he was actually airlifted to Philadelphia, but uh, the, the prognosis was grim. He, when he got there, he couldn't talk. He was conscious and, and reacted just with his eyes and things up to his surroundings, but he wasn't even able to speak. And Carol realized her husband was almost surely going to die. They didn't pull punches. They told her he probably won't live through this stroke. And uh, Carol became Billy Graham all of a sudden with her husband. Praise God she did. She started to talk to him. She relay relayed this whole thing to me afterwards. I won't use her exact words, but I have the sense of what she said. Ed, we've had a wonderful life together. You've been a great husband to me. You've loved me. You've respected me. I've always wanted to be where you are. But Ed, if you're going to die, like the doctor says, you're not going to be where I am. Because when I die, I'm going to be at home with Jesus Christ. 
has been my Savior and is my Savior. Took my penalty of my sins and made it possible for me to have eternity in the presence of God. Ed, you're not going to be there. You know the gospel. You've heard it. I've told it to you. Ed, I want you to be with me. If it's possible that even now, right now, that we think you're dying. She was a bold woman in saying these things, wasn't she? She said, could you give me some sign that you believe in Christ before you die? Could you blink your eyes? Ed blinked. He blinked again to make sure she saw it. And I believe Ed is going to be with Carol in glory one day because he has since gone home to the Lord before whom he blinked. Now, what does that have to do with all this? Well, it's confessing with your eye blink that Jesus is Lord. And Ed didn't pass a theology exam or even make his profession to the elders or ever come to a communion table, as far as I know. But he accepted the fundamental step of discerning the body of Jesus Christ offered for him as the atonement of his sin, even in those last moments of his life. I know today when I speak to a congregation here that has been well taught in the Word of God, I know your pastor well, I know how he's taught you and preached before you. There probably are not that many here on a cold January morning that aren't necessarily discerning the body of Christ, but maybe there are. There are people who coast along, you know, in the body of almost any church who have their own reasons for being there, and they're not necessarily that they're truly worshiping the Lord Christ. I ask of that person, would you ask yourself, do I desire an eternal salvation knowing I can't achieve it or win it or buy it? Is it clear to me that Jesus was the Son of God and that his death achieved something totally unique in all of history for those who put faith in him? Do you believe that Christ's long-ago death in your place actually was God's appointed method of justifying you in his sight? And do you accept the free gift of the mercy of God? You can answer those questions well. You're going to, like the gentleman who did blink before a plea to accept Christ. You're going to avoid condemnation in that final day told about in Revelation chapter 20. It tells us there, as John writes the Revelation, that after the return of Christ, the book of life is going to be opened and the dead will be judged. And there will be no deceptions. There'll be no hiding under a table and getting away with, without being judged by God, the all-seeing one, who will judge, it says there, the world in righteousness. Actually, that's in Acts 17. God will judge the world in righteousness, the writer in Acts says, by a man he has appointed, and he has given us assurance by raising this man from the dead. Christ, who is Savior and his Lord, is going to be judge, and the secrets of every heart are going to be known. And your testimony then won't be just made to a group of elders hearing you and admitting you to church membership. It'll be admitting you to the halls of eternal life. Jesus said in John 5, He who has my word and believes him who sent me has now, present tense, has eternal life. And he shall not come into judgment, but be passed 
from death to life. You discern the body of Christ, the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, the ultimate return and judgment of Christ. Do you see those things as central to your life? If so, you have passed, we pray, from dead death to life. Well, then, that's a longer first point. A shorter second point's coming. We assume, then, that if you've settled this basic issue of calling Jesus your Lord and you've professed faith in him and you've joined a gathered church, whether this one or another one, secondly, we weigh this big question, how can I be judged or found worthy today of the Lord's table, of the memorial remembrances, the symbols that God gave in in wine and in bread? How can I be worthy now, today, as I take communion time after time? Well, some people imagine that communion day is, is kind of like wash day in the old days when you had to boil a lot of water and get the harsh detergents with lye in it and all that, and the, the wife pounded the clothes and hung them out to dry, and it was a big deal to do the wash and get everything as clean as you could. And indeed, that is not a bad image to think about as we come to communion. It's a time to confess. It's a time to seek the stains on your souls from things you've hidden from other people, things you've tried to hide from the Lord in vain, I will add. Time to sweep the cobwebs out of your soul and say, Lord, I look at the person I am as a Christian and I'm not entirely pleased. And we forget sins that we should confess and we minimize others. So how do we bring anything to Christ when we celebrate communion each time that that makes us worthy, or, or at least is a worthy attempt to be right before the Lord. Well, Calvin wrote about preparedness for communion. And John Calvin said, the best and only worthiness that we can bring to God is to offer him our vileness and unworthiness so that his mercy can make us worthy. Calvin said, we are beggars coming to a kindly giver. We are dead men and women coming to him who gives life. In other words, you, you would be judged worthy by be, being sure that you know and you tell the Lord how unworthy you are. That seems diabolical, but that's it. God wants to know that we know our unworthiness. He knows that there's no problem with what he knows. It's whether we know it. There's that hymn that many would echo as a fundamental statement of the gospel. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked I look to thee for dress, helpless I look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Every Christian needs regular examination, not just on communion Sundays, but the honest look at our lives attempting to call our sin what it is. You see, we, we always rename it. You know, uh, a man might spend time that he certainly should not spend with pornography. And he'd say, oh, yeah, you know, I look at questionable pictures once in a while. God says you're committing adultery against your wife, not just looking at dirty pictures. Name your sin what it is. David said in Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God 
or a broken spirit, a broken, contrite heart God will not despise. Psalm 139 has David praying, Search me, O God, know my heart, try me and know my thoughts. David knew that he was guilty of self-deception, calling his sin something else, and he needed to learn what God called it and call it that himself. If he could have lived in the modern technological age, maybe David would have prayed, Lord, strap me into your heavenly lie detector and expose the worst that you know about me, and I will freely own it as my own. Could you ask yourself a few of these questions to challenge your preparation or worthiness for the Lord's table? Have I been complaining, moaning, argumentative with God, feeling that he owes me something that he's not giving me? I need a better deal than God has has set out for me? What if I thought about the Ten Commandments? Which of them most accuse me of wrongdoing? Is there some secret shame I'm hiding from those who are close to me? Has pride or greed been at work in me lately? I remember a day more than 25 years ago now, 26 years ago, when I was interviewed for the position to come as senior pastor at Westminster Church. I had an exhausting long interview where the whole committee, 10 people, were asking all kinds of questions. And one woman had been assigned this question, I found out later, and she said, it was late in the exam, I was really kind of worn out by all the questioning. And she asked the question, she said, Michael, what would you say is your besetting sin? In other words, a sin that just keeps rising up to bite you, to cause you problems, to put, trip you up, and you know, what, what is it that comes back again and again? And my brain was scrambled, and I, I thought, I need an answer to this question. And I, I couldn't think it seemed, for what seemed like a long minute. And then I said, I guess I would just have to say pride. That was 26 years ago, and that's the answer I'd give today. Pride. I'm a proud man. So much so as to my detriment. And I think it perhaps touches a few of you as well. Our sin actually involves other people too, you know. 1 Corinthians 11.29 says we must recognize or discern the body of the Lord. But wait a minute. Here's the body of the Lord right here. Your fellow members. Some of them are in the balcony. The living body of Christ we need to recognize just as much as Christ himself in his death and resurrection. How have we sinned against fellow Christians? Is there somebody in the living body that we wouldn't even look or wish to talk to? We kind of, let me get out that door today because he's standing over there and I don't want to talk to him on the way out. I hope not, but I know it's entirely possible. Can you picture somebody that just always strikes you the wrong way and you can't seem to work things out with that person and here they are in this church and uh, you just don't know how to handle that. Or another person in the body of Christ, what about your spouse? Have you had difficulty expressing important things to him or her? And men, men, I'm going to address you in particular. What are you going to do about it? You think about it. I'm kind of rough on my wife sometimes. I'm confessing. She's right there. I don't always like to admit it because I'm the minister. But I'm rough on her. 
What am I going to do about it? What does God want me to do about words that wound and hurt or just cut in ways that they shouldn't? Folks, our text concludes, I think, at 1 Corinthians 11.31. If we judged ourselves, we will not come under judgment. Paul's great concern here is whether your faith rests sincerely and completely in Jesus Christ and nothing else. Do you, as you come to communion any time in your life, in your church experience, look and grasp Christ's perfect righteousness, not how good your personal morality is? Don't tell yourself the fairy tale that most Americans say. Oh, well, I'm a pretty good guy. I mean, good grief. I pay my taxes. I try to help my neighbors out. I'm, of course I'm going to heaven. I, there's more on my side than against me. You know that isn't what the gospel is about. The Lord's Supper has us looking in several directions. One writer said this. It causes us to look back to Christ's death, to look inward to expose sin, to look around us to check on our fellowship and look forward to Christ's grand return. And so your prayer each time you come to the Savior's table ought to be this. You know the words well, just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Dear Father, I thank you for this church. Thank you for each and every believer who's here today. Thank you for leading them through whatever paths it took in youth or adulthood to call Jesus Savior and Lord so that they would discern his body. But Father, I pray that you keep on leading us to examine our hearts to weed out the ugly things that grow in us yet as believers, to look upon a time of remembering Christ's body and blood as a time that we celebrate the wonderful grace and mercy you showed us through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you for him. Have your way and work in each one, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.